Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <gasps> Hello and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast and I'd like to start with an apology first for being away for so long. Um, we will be carrying on with our celebration of all things Chapelweight, the new miniseries from Epics, starring Adrian Brody and created by Jason and Peter Filade, who we spoke to last month. But um, we've had a bit of a technical issue with our interview with uh, Evan Lamp, the host of the 100 Pages podcast. But we will be re-recording that and Evan will be on the uh, podcast for a fascinating discussion of Jerusalem's Lot which uh, Chapway is based on. And we will be speaking to Steph McKenna shortly after that, so that's to look forward to. We're taking a little break from all things Chapway, though, and uh, this month we'll be talking to Alex Grass, the author of the new book, Drek, about one of his favourite Stephen King novels, and one of mine as well, actually, Dr. Sleep. Uh, first, a little information about Alex. He was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and he lived in Philadelphia, Israel, and a few other places before settling in Brooklyn with his wife and three kids. As a teenager, Alex was in a thrash metal band called Shock Syndrome. He later worked in construction, landscaping, driving in a car auction, and worked in parts and shipping for a Honda dealership. After obtaining his GED, he went to Penn State Online for attending Cadarso Law School on scholarship. While at Cadarso, Alex was a Florsheimer student fellow in constitutional law and a law clerk for the Institute for Justice and for the New York County Defenders. After a stint in rehab, he dropped out of law school to become a full-time author. And I spent the weekend reading his new novel, Drek, and uh, I can tell you that strange, beautiful mix of experiences and uh, uh, life-changing uh, kind of uh, uh, ideas here it really goes into creating a very unusual, beautiful sci-fi fantasy novel which is available on Amazon and all other good booksellers. So thank you very much. And before we speak to Alex about Drek, about Doctor Sleep, and about his life as a writer, I'd just like to give a quick mention to Andrew Biggs, who wrote me a very lovely email thinking, saying how much he was enjoying the show and gave me some uh, very interesting ideas for future guests. So uh, thanks, Andrew. And if you'd like to write to us, we're at the constantreaderpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, let us know if you have any ideas for guests we might have upcoming, um, any thoughts on Stephen King. And uh, yeah, maybe mention how much you're looking forward to uh, Gwendy's Final Task, the new Stephen King and Richard Chisma novel, which is coming out in February. Without any further ado, let's go straight to my conversation with Alex Grass. Thank you. So welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Mr. Alex Grass, the author of Drek and many other works as well. And as always, I always begin by pointing out that when I invite a guest onto the podcast, I always ask them which like Stephen King novel or film adaptation or TV, TV adaptation they kind of feel most strongly about that they want to talk about. And you've chosen Dr. Sleep, which is great. It's, it's one of my favorites. I love Dr. Sleep. I love The Shining. But I mean, w w what is it about this book that um, made you, that is, 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 is your connection to it? What, what, what about it speaks to you? Well, uh, I read Dr. Sleep, I would say I was probably like a year or a year and a half uh, out of, uh, rehab. I, I had gone down to Florida and I was in a three month long program, uh, for, uh, 
um, alcohol and drug abuse. And um, it was a time where I had really, uh, you know, I had turned inward, which I had never really done before. I'd never really, um, you know, considered um, not just my life, but my place in the world, my place in my family and, you know, like sort of my place in existence, the big questions. And um, I hadn't read Stephen King in a long time, in a long time. And it was the first book that I picked up. I can't remember why. Uh, I'm going to guess it was probably at the recommendation of my wife's brother, um, uh, Vincenzo Vinny. And um, it floored me. It completely floored me. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I'd be happy to talk about sort of the, um, even though it's a bit of a, like, it's become a bit of a woo-woo term, uh, the spiritual elements of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It, I think, speaks to King's strengths um, in r- writing the the innermost thoughts and uh, feelings of very, very complicated people, you know, um, because Danny in the book, he's, you know, a guy who's suffered trauma and um, he is in his own way, even though he's he's isolated and alone um, you know, and his, his mother has died at that point. He is living, you know, basically a self-centered life, even, even if it is self-annihilation, it's a self-centered life. And at times when I was reading the book, I just felt like, you know, uh, Stephen King was writing out, um, you know, he was like taking, uh, the, uh, neurotransmitters dipping a quill in them and then like writing out my story but then again that's sort of the the nature of um someone who has gone has uh you know my counselor said it's funny when you go to rehab it's like you take a big shit in the middle of the living room and then you sit and then you say to everybody in your life all right i'm gonna go to florida for three months you guys take care of that you know um and I, I, th- I think it's the book covered so much ground in terms of what I was looking for. Mm. Um, it, well, it, I, it's I, kind of interesting that we do meet Danny firstly when he's a child, and then when he he reaches, I, I understand what's called like the rock bottom, like the the actual depth of his depravity. This this encounter with this this woman, Dini, and her son. And it's it's a hell of a thing to kind of have that in your first 50 pages and then expect us to kind of follow the character through that, isn't it? Because, I mean, it is a redemptive story, obviously, but it, it, it is very grim, isn't it? It's incredibly grim. And I think, I think that's, you know, that's the reality. And it's probably, you know, I don't want to speculate too much, but I, I know, I know enough. It's, it's i think that there's a universal thread you know um people who have addiction issues or just you know mental illness um mm. they there's a part of them there's the self-loathing but um a unique self-loathing i mean everybody looks at themselves i think and um feels insecure or you know feels that they they're not up to snuff in some way you know um but i think that you know, people who are the sort of the nature of like being alcoholic. It's like you're self-centered. So you destroy everybody's life. And then the focus is on you feeling bad about what you've done. Mm. 
you know? And um, I think that's why the novel works very well because it, it deals with that in terms of the AA kind of guides and rule books. And it right. seems like a very um, unsentimental, very self coruscating way of doing it, isn't it? There's this repeated phrase that King uses in the book where he says, Why do we drink? And it, it's, it's because we're drunks. Right. It's not because of our past or our genetics, even though those are aspects of it. It's right. because there is that simple truth of you are a drunk or an addict. Yes. No, it's that's exactly what it is. It's like, you know, you know, because mommy didn't love me because daddy hit me or whatever else. And those weren't my reasons, <laughs> you know. Well, I was, well, well, to be honest, Danny's dad was was kind of that's that's he's a he's 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 one of them, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know. For for myself, I didn't quite have uh, Jack Torrance in my life, you know. Uh, it's reassuring. Yeah, you know. I mean, me and my old man, we you know we would go at it. Like, like we look back, we were both we you know we both had low enough bottoms, and you know we we got in, like a fist fight at the King James Hotel in New York, and you know like we yeah we're the cause of plenty plenty of uh, public depravity, plenty. But I think what you what you honed in on it's it's exactly right it's like you know if you're serious about changing your shit you should know that like if one is serious the universal you as they say in the big lebowski you know if if you're serious about changing your shit it's hard the odds are low and you're just gonna have to get real right away and i my my sponsor my first sponsor um was a guy he was blind and he had he had been blinded, um, it, one eyeball in two separate incidents. You know, yeah. One he was he was punched in in um, the the left eye with a dumbbell in the prison yard, and then, that would do it. Yeah, that, that would do it, right? And and then before that, um, uh, he was high on crystal meth, and he he fell on a, a, a rebar and a construction site. You know, and he lost everything and he went to jail and, you know, it was really hard for me to complain to him, mm. you know, when he was sitting there talking about, you know, like life is good, you know, um, you know, put your feet first and, and, and then your mind will follow. But it's true. It's sort of, it's not a hundred percent, you know, uh, axiomatic, but you can choose, you can choose. And I think that, you know, it's, at the core of um of uh of uh Danny's conflict and certainly in, a, in the with a lot of other characters you have free will you know mm. you you get to you get to make that you get to make that you know um that choice to go you know down the dark path or you know up towards the city on the hill or you know whatever no that's very interesting you should say that cuz on my second the reread I did for this interview of Dr. Sleep, the thing that I probably didn't notice first time around is how much the um, the true not, which is the, the antagonist of the piece, these kind of um, energy-seeking vampires who travel all over the country, they are kind of like their own group of addicts in the same way the AA group are. They have their own rituals, their own chants, their own hierarchies, their own way of being. But the thing was, they've given into the addiction. They've, Like you say, they've gone down that dark path. And so they associate their need to kill children and harvest them as, as survival they don't think it's a choice anymore they're like 
we we need to do this at this point which is yeah. exactly like that choice that you make between as i suppose addiction do you actually need to do it or is it just something you can actually stop doing i i love that kind of parallel between the two well it's 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 even more remarkable because you you think about um like the r- r- rationalization um in, in for like all great all great evil characters but also you think of like the great moments of um of a character reflecting on conscience i always think of you know um I think it's Raskolnikov in um, Crime and Punishment. Crime and punishment you know? yeah. Like the whole book is just him, you know, what have I done? And I think that there is something innate. I don't know what, what exactly you would call it, but there's some sort of, you know, there's something where the, you know, like the body can tell once you, once you've stepped out the bonds, uh, the bounds of a cosmic or natural law, you, you know, you know what mm-hmm. you do. Cause, cause otherwise you wouldn't even explain it, you know? Yeah. Like, why explain why you have to kill kids? You know, why, why, why explain, you know, um, and there's always like, it's become a trope in film even, you know, like the, uh, the bad guy who's got to tell you his whole plan, you know? (laughs) Yes. That's self-justification. Exactly. Which stops you from getting, you know, healthy or well, I suppose. Yeah. And it's, I, 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 I kind of, I love the idea that you have these, um, these transient beings as well, because they have no home and kind of a big theme in Dr. Sleep, I think is the idea of like arriving in a place where you're kind of useful and wanted. That's Danny's kind of journey, isn't it? He's like transient and a drifter until he finds this place where he can actually, um, I suppose where he can actually serve people and do some good. Well, that's the true not never have that. They always keep on moving. They don't exist as people in a way that they have, cutouts and shadow bank accounts and people everywhere, but they don't actually kind of exist as real people. Yeah. It's just about fulfilling that need. Well, they're, they're like the people that live like in Key West, Florida, except they have trailers instead of boats. You know, it's like, uh, I, 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 the, the reference is a uniquely American reference. Key West is where uh, all the Jimmy Buffett fans and felons go, you know. Oh, no, I've been to Florida. It's ghastly. And my wife is American. She's a New Yorker, so she, she'll always say, Oh, yeah. that's, that's, you know, that's my wife's that's, a New Yorker. I'll, I'll say a full disclosure I, I love Florida. There's a, a hillbilly part of me, and, and uh, like, so there, I'm, I'm a low end kind of guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like, when, when I pass by a strip mall and I, I see, you know, like, uh, like, Gym, gym, pawn shop, gun shop. I'm like, all right, I got something to do this after. You know? <laughs> That's going to take care of everything, isn't it? That's good. Really? Hey. <laughs> right. and, yeah. I, and I just realized while, while uh, slagging off Florida, I think Stephen King lives there most of the time now. I understand he has a home there, so it, it seems uh, yeah. slightly. But, um, yeah. but I think that, that is like something he observes very well, is that kind of that Americana. And I mean, that's obviously something that everybody says that he sees America kind of how it is. I mean, I, I, you say, you know, you hadn't read a book for a while of his since, I mean, before Dr. Sleep, but were you kind of an early fan of his? Was he like, uh, I read him as a, I read, I read as a kid, as a kid, mm-hmm. I, I read him as a kid. And, uh, I read what was the first, what was the first one, the very first uh, Cujo. Oh yeah. yeah. Cujo, Cujo, um, 
scared the bejesus out of me, you know? And uh, I think that like, uh, I think that when you can, um, in whatever art form, the, the, whatever art form um, the creator operates in, you know, whatever media, if you can bring people back to that, that feeling that they had when they were children, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of, that sort of fear, you know, sort of like that uncomfortable um, sort of, um, uh, I associate it with like looking in a mirror when you have a mirror behind you as a young kid and like thinking too much about how far the reflection goes. And then you're, you, there's something in your, uh, uh, you know, uh, synapses just goes on the fritz, you know, that sort of, um, like, um, dark empty uh i'm at the um i'm at the bottom of existence and who knows what sort of dark creepy things crawl in the night that sort of dread i think Mm -hmm. that's amazing it's interesting you should mention cujo because i think that is a book that king talks about that he actually can't remember writing due to his own addiction issues at the time and a lot of the early stuff does feel written in that kind of that fevered pace with that kind of strange kind of energy to it doesn't it it's i i don't know if it's um i, I mean i personally i think his writing's improved a lot but the early books when he was obviously doing a lot of drugs and drinking a lot they do have that kind of energy to them it's it's horribly enviable isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah so i i um i you know i was talking with a guy a couple days ago and he he said the same thing he's like i'm just so jealous that like you know he could be at the like one of the like psychological low points of his life and just shit out you know like basically 25 percent of the corpus of modern horror literature <laughs> you know and i i said look listen i would venture a guess you probably didn't want to be inside his head at that time you know? <laughs> and not That's not right. even because it was frightening but but you know probably because you know um people who are hurting themselves don't have regard for themselves. If you don't have regard for yourself, you really can't have regard for somebody else. That's where the selfishness comes in. You know? That's very true. I mean, I, I assume you've read The Shining. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And to me, that book is, it, it's a very sublimated novel about not wanting to hit your children, essentially, to kind of lash out at the people around you. And to kind yeah, of write yeah. through that in this kind of horror way, is, it, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's a man kind of literally dealing with his, his, his demons through print, isn't it? It's, it's incredible. Did you find, do you find that in your own writing as well, that it is um, a form of uh, catharsis or a way of kind of dealing with things in your own life, or is it an escape from that? Um, I don't think it's quite cathartic. I mean, escape maybe a little bit, you know, because, you know, it's fantastical. So, uh, like, obviously I'm not, like, jumping through portals and, uh, you know, associating with some... Um, supernatural antler man in real life but like uh that would be pretty cool but that that you know of that you know of uh, (laughs) well not since i got clean but uh you know (laughs) but um yeah i mean escape but like escape in a positive way i get really excited um about writing these stories you know and like uh i get it's probably a lot off my chest, but I like to think that these days, um, you know, I'm a I'm about as settled, uh, you know, I think as a, as a man can get, or at least as I can get, you know. <laughs> so, like, uh, you know, my old man read read um, Drek, and he and he's like, "Oh man, this is all about us," and I'm like, eh, 
you know, a little, but not really so much. I said, you know, it's like more. I said, you know, more than anything, I, I think it's kind of like like a warped uh, Christ story. But you know, uh, yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, I, I, I I'm not even going to attempt to describe for the listeners what Drek is actually about. But if you could kind of sum it up in in as as kind of concisely as you can, how how would you kind of describe Drek? Oh God, I'm so bad at this. And I was talking to my editors this morning about how bad I am at this, you know? Um, what is it about? It's, I think it's about um, a view of uh, a post-apocalyptic landscape that isn't typical in that, you know, you see the world after World War Three, and people are getting by and, you know, like things have been rough, but they haven't been destroyed. You know, and I, I think it's um, uh, at least that thread comes from I, I have a very anti-golden ageist uh, view of things. I think people are constantly reaching backward and I, I think um, nostalgia is great, but I, I think it's not useful other than uh, just as pure retrospective. You mm. know, it, it's entertainment, but that's it. Um, so there's this world and um into it at the very end of the of the war there's a portal and drek who is this um grotesque monstrosity steps through the portal right after uh seven soldiers have been killed by the portal's appearance um uh right after the armistice and um the whole world it just goes into a frenzy uh hating him and um, I don't think I really ever get into the reasons why, but I don't think scapegoats really need a reason. You know, I think it's mm. actually the nature of scapegoating that there is actually not a reason, you know, and um, without giving too much away, um, one day this man or this monster rather, who's been hated by everybody, um, a, a, dies and appears in a mortuary in seven points in what used to be Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, it's remarkable because, you know, the, the inference that the reader can draw is that Drek had never really been able to be located even, you know, there was something like ephemeral to him, you know, sort of like he, he is part of like the, like the ether, you know, like the simulacra, the, the glimmers and the shadows that exist, you know, um, and that's one of the things, uh, I guess, I, I never wrote it explicitly, but it's like one of the things that probably bothers people, you know, like the unknown infuriates people. Mm. Infuri not just upsets people, but the unknown infuriates people because uh, they can't control it. And, you know, like people are so fearful of what they can't control, you mm. know. So it's not only that this, you know, horrendous, uh, you know, mutated thing comes at the end of world, the, essentially World War III, but it's also that no one can get a grip on him, you know, literally or figuratively. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's highlighted by, uh, I'm, again, I'm not going to give too much away about the books. I think people should read it. It's a very good book. Kind of the different groups who come to claim this body and think they have kind of ownership over it and using it for their own nefarious purposes. Yeah. And that gives you kind of a lovely cross-section of how society is set up after this kind of war, the, the long war and the post-apocalypse. And it's like religious and it's political and it, it's, it's, it's got all these like familial connections to it. I, I, I heartily recommend it. And it's interesting that you should like talk about Dr. Sleep as well, because at the end of Dr. Sleep, you do get that reconciliation between father and son. 
which I think is kind of like one of those things in Drek as well, this idea of like the father and the son are kind of reconciled. Was, was, was that like a deliberate ending for you? Did you kind of see that coming? No, no, I did not. And I wish I could remember the the reason why I wrote it that way. Um, the uh, I structured the book, and I, I don't do this too often, but I structured the book sitting, writing on notepad when uh, my wife and I were at an orientation. And, um, and what, you know, like one of the lecturers was speaking about, um, about, uh, hospice care mm. and. Which again is very appropriate for Dr. Sleep. Right, right, right. A- actually, <laughs> the reason we were there was because of Dr. Sleep. I was so obsessed with this book. Yeah. Cause he was, <laughs> cause he was a hospice care worker. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, I've, I've, I might have, you know, uh, you know, mostly healed uh, the maladies that afflicted me, but I'm still an obsessive guy, mm-hmm. you know. So I read Doctor Sleep, and then I'm like, I will model my life after Doctor Sleep. And those those sorts of things usually run in three month increments. <laughs> and, and my wife is very used to it. But um, the the passion for for I mean, there are very few books that can. I think change the way that you view everything mm. and the ones that come to mind immediately for me are Dr. Sleep, Anathem by Neil Stevenson. And, uh, and uh, I hate to say this cause this is like sort of like uh, a, a, like a, a hipster name drop, you know, sort of like the way people who know nothing about physics will mention quantum mechanics and cocktail conversation, but brothers care Mazov. Oh, that's right. I thought you were going to say David Foster Wallace. It's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, okay. No, 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 no. Dostoevsky. He, you know, you could not have, um, in terms of background, more dissimilar writers. You know, mm. um, but they both knew the devil inside. I mean, you know, Dostoevsky. Yeah, they terrible, terrible. Uh, personal history, you know, his father's killed by uh, his serfs in their, mm-hmm. you know, in their country estate. You know, he loses a child. Um, he he has awful epilepsy, at, you know, at the time, which is basically associated with you know being demonic, and he has a terrible uh, gambling problem. And um, you know, I don't know which is worse. I had a friend who had a had an awful gambling problem, and he called me on the brink one day right before he went back. And um, it was pretty horrifying, you know, because the damage that you can do with that sort of addiction is instant. Mm. You can wreck your life. You can from everything, you know, the, 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 the bare necessities that you don't even think of your food, your home, your bank account, your car, you know, your credit. So like, just it becomes insurmountable and it can happen in days. Mm. So uh, if you don't mind me asking a, a rather personal question, I mean, when in the first half of the book, you do see Danny's journey to sobriety. Could you empathize a lot with that kind of the, the steps that he takes, kind of the, the obstacles that are in his path, that, that kind of uh, the lapses and the kind of the temptations? Was, was that what kind of uh, appealed to you? Well, you found him come on the ground with uh yeah i mean the i'll say the first time yeah it's shocking it's shocking mm-hmm. when you when you find 
you know, that you've done all this good work and, you know, all of a sudden it's just like, you know, it never really goes away. That's why you have to stay on top of it. You know, I drove, I can't, I came to, vi- you know, they would give us a, I got a weekend passes. So I came up, I think like twice during the three months, um, when I was down in Florida and I, dr- I remember I drove past an old bar that I went to mm. and I was just like, I was fucking thrown, you know? I was like, I could have a fucking drink right now. So I, you know, I called up, uh, you know, my, uh, my good old blind shepherd down in Florida. And he said, just stay in the apartment, <laughs> you know, don't go, don't go anywhere. Yeah. That's, that's what I did. That was one of my favorite moments in, in, in the book. I think it happens a couple of times when Danny passes a bar and he visualizes like what would be happening inside and how easy it would be to kind of, listen to that music and sit in that booth and talk to these women and just you know, do that again. And that bit where you get $2 pictures before 9 PM and that kind of thing. And you, 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 those bits in the book, I think they're far more terrifying and you you care far more for him at those points than when he's in jeopardy fighting the true knot, don't you? It, it, it's, that's what you really you want. To st- it doesn't matter if he lives or dies, but you want to stay sober. And I think that's kind of, one of the great achievements of the book, I think, to me anyway. No, I agree. And I, I think that um, actually, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the movie too. I'm a huge Mike Flanagan mm. fan. Huge. Oh, yeah. Mike. yeah. I, I think the things that he's doing are remarkable. He's going to, you know, emer- emerge from this, from this generation as the horror auteur, I think. But he, um, the way he frames it, you know, like, when when Abra's been kidnapped, you know, and he he has the he has the bottle. You're not just looking at him lapsing. So because the stakes are raised and it's framed properly, mm-hmm. what you're looking at is everything can be destroyed. You know, that's that's what you know the devil inside you can do. It's like it can tempt you. Even a decent person, a good person, a, a person who knows better, it can tempt you to just burn it all down instantly. Mm. I think that's that's why in the film he go, the first place he goes to in the overlook at the end is the bar, and sees his father, and that's kind of like the, that's the real test. That's kind of the, the the ultimate antagonist. It's like, do you want to be like this guy, or do you want to move on and actually save the child? Which of course is the child in yourself and the child you were. That's that redemptive thing that's in pretty much every Stephen King novel, isn't it? It's that recurring theme: the child has to save the man by saving the child. And I mean, and um, you know, I think you see that in uh, you know, it's interesting the focus that uh, Stephen King, I think, more than any horror writer, maybe more than most writers, uh, full stop, is the focus on you know children, you know, mm-hmm. the 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 hero's journey in childhood, you know, the remarkable things that kids, uh, uh, the children can do, they can belly up to the bar and they can, you know. Sometimes when you're not muddled by, you know, like all, all the dirt and muck of, uh, of, of, li- of being socialized and being uh, a cog in the machine of civilization, sometimes you just know, like I said before, like the thing that is right, you know, the, the way mm. they, and. Um, well, that's the beauty of the novelette, isn't it? It's like they defeat the antagonists when they're children, but they have to 
come back as adults and regain what they knew as children. And it, it, it's a very recent, it happens recently in his novels, later in the Institute. They're all about these children who are gifted in some way and have to kind of show like the, the, the moral end to the actions to the adults. I, I think that's a really lovely um, theme. Yeah. I mean, it's it's excellently done, and I'm pressed to think of uh, of someone else who does it so well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's like, I know Ray Bradbury is a big influence on King, but I find Ray Bradbury tends to mythologize childhood too much. Right. Whereas right. King, it's a very real, visceral thing, and I that, that's an incredible thing. So, um, a couple of questions before you let you go, Alex. Um, one I ask all my guests. So, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm reading. <laughs> I'm reading uh, uh, Strongman. It's a biography of uh, of uh, Doug Hepburn, who used to have the overhead uh, press record. And <laughs> and and uh, this is kind of an obsession for you. It must be because in Drek you have this character Apollon, like the, the French strongman. Is this like a recurring forever, um, forever, <laughs> forever? forever and i do i do it about three four times a week and i have a friend actually uh that i met at the gym he just got his phd in art history from nyu and the only thing we ever talk about we have never talked about art we have never talked about anything that would uh represent culture in any way all we talk about is strongman competitions That's, (laughs) that's it that's it. And this guy is like off the off the chart brilliant. And I, and, and he doesn't care and I don't care. Just not <laughs> just not interested in anything except weightlifting. What's what's the appeal? I I I I've never understood it myself. I mean, we That is a great question. What is it? I suppose it's well, it's primal. Mm-hmm. Um it's 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 a simple way of I I guess um testing uh the limits of uh you know the vessel that you occupy mm. um and um and you know it's i have found actually that like the community uh, i can't speak about uh, strength sports writ large but in strongman and this is you know because people aren't super familiar strongman is like basically when you see people like lifting a log overhead or a circus dumbbell or lifting a stone and putting it on a podium the community is amazing. People are so supportive. People are so nice. People are so humble, you know, and, and, uh, and I find, um, I don't know. It brings me joy. (laughs) It, it does. It brings, you know, there's a couple of things I really, yeah, I really, really love in life. You know, I'm a, I'm a family man. I love spending time with with my kids. I love vegging out and watching horseshit TV with my wife when we can get time together. You know, it's a little hard. We got three kids. She's in med school. You know, I I wake up at like four in the morning, so our schedules aren't synced. Uh, so there, you know, there's that. Uh, there's a horror. Um, mm-hmm. You know, reading and writing, and then there's weightlifting. True. Yeah, the guy lifting something above his head. I mean, that that's that's got to be you know, it's got to be sim- It's got to mean something. It's got to be symbolic of something. You know, so I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, another question I ask all my guests is, um, uh, what is a book you would recommend to people that you think has uh, flown under the radar a bit? A book uh, you would wish more people have read. Like, it can't be one of your own though. Ooh, that's a tough one. Mm. That's a that's a hard one. 
Yeah, uh, interesting question. I mean, a lot of people bring up Dostoevsky. I think he's making a bit of a comeback. A, a lot of people tell me, uh, the yeah, Devil Brothers Karamazov. Yeah, yeah, I know. But if he's in, in like every single college curriculum, has he really flown under the radar? You know, true. Yeah. I, 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 under, I understand he's not like flying off the bookshelves uh, anymore. But you know, I mean, like you, you can't get through a literature program. I don't think without having read him. Uh, no, should you? No, read. Yeah. And, and it's it's right that it's that way. <laughs> Under the radar. Ooh, um, John Michael Greer. Uh, he has a, a book called The Weird of Kali, and it's it's the first in a seven part series. Um, he's a fascinating guy. He's um, he writes about the occult, um, but so, sort of uh, from the um, I guess he has the same perspective as like an Alan Moore. He's like a ceremonial, oh, yeah. a ceremonial magician, but like very erudite. Everything's well researched, rarely if ever wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, and he wrote um, uh, this Lovecraftian. I mean, like the Lovecraft mythos. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. saying you know, but like, like Lovecraftian on in a definitional sense. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, seven book series and the concept behind it is like what if the cults and the Lovecraft mythos are actually the ones being persecuted and um, yeah I mean if, if we're talking about under the radar I think that I think that's a good pick no I, like I love the sound of it I'm going to put that on my list what's the first book called? Uh, the Weird of Kali and they're, they're all in a series where um, it's a uh, it's the names of the towns. So um, it's either, um, so it's like Providence, Innsmouth. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can't, sure that, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I can't, I can't remember which one the first one is. But uh, yeah, but the, uh, and like a really interesting protagonist because they, like the guy is um, a military vet who goes into um, like a, a literature program. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like um like the combination of like a man's man and you know a very cerebral guy um but it's like very very uh it's not ham-fisted at all really well done i'm sold i'm gonna, I'm gonna get on amazon tonight and uh, finally i i have to ask um uh drek was released what last year drek was released three months two months ago Two months ago. Good God, there you go. So, uh, what, what's what's next for you? What are you what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I got another one called A Boy's Hammer coming out in uh, December, and um, it's sort of like um, I guess an urban fantasy riff on the Kalevala, which is the Finnish national um, um, uh, myth. Uh, mm-hmm. Their epic, who was it was put together, I think, in the late nineteenth century. I want to say by uh i'm gonna get the name wrong elias lonrot unless that's somebody else i could be misremembered okay that's no don't edit it out i'm (laughs) i'm fallible and often stupid so people should know that you know it comes through in the book and when can we expect to see that uh that'll be out i want to say mid-december although um yeah yeah like a touch yeah touch before christmas a little bit after hanukkah very cool man and until then, um, Drek, uh, Black River Lantern, and The Influencer, 
are all available uh, from Amazon.com and anywhere else you can buy them from. Do you have a, uh, your own website or is, a, is that the best place to get your books from? I probably do. I would have to ask somebody about that. I'm... <laughs> Where do you get anything from? <laughs> Amazon's good. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> where else are you gonna go? <laughs> yeah, where? I mean, like, really? You know. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alex, for joining us for this discussion. It's been absolutely lovely, and um, yeah, we look forward to uh, reading more of your stuff soon. And uh, take care. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening to the Constant Reader Podcast. Feel free to like, subscribe, rate, review, download, and recommend this podcast any way you can. It was hosted by me, Richard Shepard, with technical wizardry at the end by Stephen Leslie Parks. Feel free to write to us at the constant reader podcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you very much.